Good morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Gospel City Church. My name is Tyler Holder, and I am our pastor of men's and college ministry here. And it feels like it's been a whole year since I've seen you, so I'm grateful to be here. That was a joke for the new year. You'll get it when you go to lunch today. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We are starting a new series this morning that will span the next five weeks, and it is entitled, Kingdom Parables, Kingdom Parables. Now, as you're finding your way to Luke 14, let me ask you a simple question. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody that was way smarter than you? Am I the only one that does this on a regular basis, right? So one of the joys that I have as the college pastor here at Gospel City is that I'm able to invite students into our home that are far from home during the holidays. And I can remember the first Thanksgiving, Janelle and I were here at Gospel City, we invited a friend of ours named G to our home. Now, G and I didn't know each other super well, so we went through the obligatory get-to-know-you questions, right? Where are you from? Do you have any siblings? How are your parents doing? What are you studying? And it was at that question, what are you studying, that I began to realize I'm an idiot. Um, and, and here's why. G, as, as he's telling me about what he's studying, about three minutes into the conversation, I realized he's way smarter than me. And I'm pretty sure he realized that about three seconds into the conversation. He explains to me what he's studying, and I'm pretty sure my face gave it away. And, and as he's talking to me, he's, he's telling me about how nanotechnology and nanoparticles can do something to something for something and make something. And I'm just staring at him. And it's just me and him in my living room. And, and he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and he's going, I'm sure in his mind, he's like, man, he's no hope, no hope. So he picks up a piece of paper and he goes, Tyler. Yeah, yeah, I feel like a four-year-old at this point. <laughs> You see this piece of paper? Sure thing, G. You fold it in half. Uh-huh. If I put something between that, could you see it? Uh-uh. That's what I'm trying to do. What? He's explaining to me that he's, he's trying to use this polymer coating of nanoparticles for something, something, something to, to make things invisible to the naked eye. And it, it wasn't until he took something that I could grasp, an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, and used that to describe to me what he was doing. G, now Dr. G, used a parable. He used a story and something that I could grasp to explain to me something of immense magnitude. And this morning, as we jump into Luke chapter 14, and really in the following chapters, we'll see Jesus do the exact same thing with a little bit more grace and a little bit more understanding than nanotechnology and particles and whatever. But what we'll see here, and really all throughout the gospels, is we'll see Jesus teach us using parables. We'll see him show us his heart and his ways by letting us in behind the curtain so in fact, over the next few weeks, as we look at Jesus' parables, I want to make sure we're all on the same page, because parables is a word that if you've been in church any amount of time, you've probably heard. So let's define, before we jump into our text, let's define parables this morning. For you and I, as we work through the parables of Jesus, this is what a parable is in the Gospels. It is Jesus using stories and pictures from everyday life to help us see his heart and his ways. 
stories and pictures from everyday life to take something complex and to make it understandable. So today, as we jump into Jesus's parables, what we're going to do is we're going to observe some of the characters that Jesus is addressing. And this morning, we're going to ask two questions that will help lead us to grasp and understand what Jesus is trying to teach us. But before we do, before we jump in and see these characters and ask these questions, let's pray and ask the Lord to open our eyes and our hearts to his word. Father, you've declared that you've given us parables so that we might see something of such magnitude, of such complexity in an understandable way. So Father, this morning I pray for hearts to be open to receive your word. I pray for ears to hear the beauty that is found in these pages. And I, found, I pray, Lord, that eyes would see your son like they never have before. So Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and we submit ourselves to it. It's in your name we pray, amen. The first thing we're gonna look at is the characters of the story. I hope you're in Luke 14. Look at the first six verses this morning. It says, one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So our text opens and the curtain raises on Luke 14. And we see Jesus on a Sabbath day dining in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Most likely Jesus had been an honored guest at the synagogue that day and had been invited over to lunch at the ruler and his friend's house. But notice immediately that we see the ruler and his gang. We see their deviousness. We see that they're not really interested in getting to know Jesus. Notice what the text says. It says they were watching him carefully. Let's just acknowledge that no good story begins with I watched you carefully, right? No good story, at least in my life, right? When I was growing up, it was, Tyler, we were watching you carefully and we noticed, oh, come on, ma, don't watch me. What the rulers and the Pharisees are doing in that moment is they're watching Jesus seeking to find a fault. In fact, Luke, who wrote this gospel and also wrote the book of Acts, uses this exact same word of the Pharisees in Damascus as they watched the city wall to see if Paul would come out so that they might kill him. There is no good nature in their hearts. Yet Jesus willfully walks into the setting. He willfully dines with this Pharisee and the rulers of the synagogue, and they're watching him carefully to see whether or not he would heal this man. Now notice, one of these is not like the others. This man with dropsy, it's not by accident that he's there. Dropsy, by the way, is just an inflammation of your appendages with fluid. Back in the first century, most people thought that the reason you had that was because of sin in your life. So the Pharisees and the lawyers bring this man in and they're testing Jesus to see what he'll do. And the irony is, is that the ones that should have known that the law declares compassion were the least compassionate in the room. So Jesus interacts with this man with dropsy and he heals them and he responds to a question that the lawyers and the Pharisees hadn't even asked. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent and then he took the man, he healed him and sent him away. 
And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Right from the start, we see that the setting Jesus is in is a hostile setting. And he loves it. He loves it because he cares about the rebellious of heart. He loves it because there's hope found in Jesus to take a callous, sinful heart that desires to watch Jesus only to find fault and hopefully give it hope. Jesus enters into this setting and we see that the characters in our story today are Jesus, the Pharisees, and the lawyers. This is a beautiful setting that we see and Jesus begins to observe their actions and teach them in kingdom parables. So these are the characters of our story this morning. So the first question we have to ask as we look at verses 7 through 11 is simply this. Do I have kingdom humility? Jesus is going to begin to teach them in parables. Look at verse 7. It says, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus begins to teach these guests using parables. And he launches into the first parable of the great feast when he notices how they have chosen the places of honor. Now, there's a a low likelihood that after church today, you're going to go to lunch with 40 of your closest friends. Maybe you will, and that would be great. But the first century, after the synagogue, people gathered in the homes, and the way they sat determined how valuable or how honored they were. So everyone at a feast or at a supper would try and sit as close to the host, as close to the person of honor as they could. And Jesus is sitting back, and he's observing this before him. And he begins to teach a parable. Now, some of you maybe uh, will be a little jarred or scarred at what I'm about to ask you to do. But if you would, would you take a trip with me down memory lane to the first day of your high school? Do you remember walking into the cafeteria? Maybe, you, maybe you're there right now, right? You're, you're holding your lunch tray with the chicken patty. You know the famous chicken patty and creamed corn that nobody desired to eat, right? And you walk into the lunchroom and you see all of the different tables laid out before you. You see the first table with the athletes and the jocks wearing leather jackets. This is back in the 90s where they were still popular. And you see the girlfriend with the necklace and class ring. And you realize you don't belong at that table. And you walk to the next and you see the geeks and the smart kids that you knew would invent something of far worth and value, but you never wanted to associate with them. And then you look at the next table and it's the anti-establishment kids that have made an establishment of being (laughs) anti-establishment. And in that moment, here's what you see. At each table, they may be different people, but the same thing is happening. There's one person everybody's looking towards. There's one person everybody wants to sit next to. There's one person that the conversation centers around. And if you were like me that first day of high school with that teal green tray, 
in that milk jug, you thought this decision would determine the trajectory of the rest of your life. What Jesus is observing is something very similar to your cafeteria. He's observing grown men jockeying for seats of honor. They wanted to sit next to the most popular person. They wanted to sit next to the one who had the most honor. They wanted to be at the table where everybody was looking. And in that setting, Jesus launches into a parable. And the irony is, is that as Jesus is watching them jockey for positions of authority to sit next to a flawed host, they have overlooked a seat next to the host of heaven. In their desire to be honored by man, they have overlooked proximity and closeness to Jesus. Even in the first few words of verse 11, I find myself in this story. And I recognize and realize that I have been guilty of jockeying for seats of honor amongst men as I forsake proximity and closeness to my Savior. So before I even hear what Jesus is about to say, I see myself as this foolish man seeking your honor above Jesus's. And my heart breaks. And I wonder, before we even get to the part of Jesus unpacking rich kingdom principles for us, are you guilty of the same thing? Desiring man's praise above God. Notice what Jesus does. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Let someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Jesus declares that it would be better to go and sit in the lowest place. He upends their jockeying by declaring that they should be pursuing the seats that would usually be filled last. And the only reason they would do that, the only reason they would do that would be if they understood humility, if they understood who they truly were in comparison to the God of the universe. The reason why they should do that, by the way, is so that they're not put to shame, so that the host of the banquet won't come to you and say, leave this place, you don't have the honor you think you do. Jesus tells them this parable, by the way, not because he's concerned about the seating chart at the next banquet. That's not why he tells them this. It's because he cares about the humility or lack thereof in their heart. And here's the reality. In order for somebody to humbly take the back seat, in order for somebody to humbly take a place that is less than honorable in their own estimation, they must have a true understanding of who they are in comparison to their savior. To rightly view ourselves before the Lord requires humility. And humility is a necessary ingredient in Jesus' upside-down kingdom. 
Humility, by the way, is a word that if you have been in a relationship with Jesus for a while or have been in church for a while, you have heard time and time again. But humility, much like the word parable, is a word that sometimes we can miss. So the question we lay before ourselves is that if humility is to be desired and not the praise of man, then what is humility? Andrew Murray, who ironically wrote a book called Humility, made this statement. He said, humility is nothing but the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. With as much love and grace in my heart as I can, can I tell you something? You're not the best. I'm not the best. I'm not the best speaker. I'm not the best preacher. You're not the best businessman or businesswoman. You're not the best student. Do you know why? Because if we follow God, and if we're committed to a relationship with him and we're humbly pursuing him, then what happens is, is that our self disappears in view of who God is. And when I view God as he rightly is, then pride will melt away. It will melt away. Notice what he says to cap off this parable. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Our natural bent, what we are born pursuing, is pride and loftiness of heart. We will always think better of ourselves than we should. Did you know that I could win the Boston Marathon? I just don't try. Did you know that? That I could play on the Lakers. I just haven't tried out yet. I don't want to embarrass anybody. We always think of ourselves as higher than we should. Our natural bent is pride. Our natural bent is loftiness of heart. And the remedy that Jesus gives us, the kingdom principle that we see in this first parable is simply this. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is esteemed more than pride. And our lives give evidence as to which one we put stock in. So this morning, with as much love in my heart as I can muster, hear me say, let us be men and women marked by humility, desiring a seat next to our Savior, not a seat next to a flawed man or woman. Let us put aside the pursuit of honor by others for the pursuit of honoring our Lord. That's the first kingdom principle we see this morning. The second kingdom principle is simply this. Have I responded to the kingdom invitation? Look at verses 12 through 24. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. 
So the servant came and reported these things to the master, and then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. The first few verses of this section give us the glimpse that we should have eyes to see the greater need that is around us. The idea behind, by the way, the word invite here in this portion of Luke 14 is that of continually inviting. So when Jesus begins and says, don't just invite your friends, your neighbors, those that can repay you. Don't just continually invite them over and over and over and over and over again. Instead, what you should do is you should have eyes to see the greater need that is before you. Invite the lame, invite the sick, invite the poor, invite the blind, invite those that have been overlooked. Invite those that can't repay you. That's who you should see. That's who you should have eyes for. That's who you should invite and take in. When we welcome without condition, we are able to engage the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and the rest, and rest that the repayment of our effort won't be until the resurrection of the just. We're able to see that. And in response to that, this man that's reclining at the table makes this awesome statement. How many of you have ever spoken without thinking? Right? Daily. All the time. And this man here with Jesus makes this statement without really thinking. Look at verse 15. He says, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he just starts spouting off. And look at what he says. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. The assumption is, is that he would be the one eating the bread at the kingdom of God. And Jesus, with grace, now, nah, bro, you're not going to be there. You're not gonna be there because the pride that you possess and the hardness of your heart prohibits you from being there. Remember, the man that said this is the same group of men that were watching Jesus carefully with hardened hearts to try and peg him with something so that they could accuse him. So this man just spouts off. And it'd be great if we were all supping together, enjoying this great banquet. Right, Jesus? Ha, ha, ha. And I love what Jesus does. Look at the next verse. Verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Kind of like the banquet he's in right there. And he begins to unpack this parable for us. Now realize that in the first century, the not.com wasn't around. I know that's hard for us to grasp um, because that's how all invitations come, it seems nowadays. In the first century, when you were gonna have, say, a, a huge feast, whether it be a wedding feast or a party of some sorts, there were two invitations that were given. The first invitation is what we would say is like a save the date card. You know those, right? Wedding season is about to come. Hey, in 14 and a half months, I'm getting married. Save the date. 14 and a half months? That's really early for a save the date card. Put it on my refrigerator. I'll forget, right? So there's this save the date type of moment. There's two invitations that somebody would give to a banquet. Somebody that's hosting it would send it out and say, hey, a banquet is coming. Be prepared. I'm inviting you to be a part of this banquet. Save the date. And then as the banquet would get ready to begin, they'd send out the second invitation. Hey, it's starting. What you have waited for with expectancy is now here. 
And here's the reality. Is that God has extended an invitation from Genesis to Malachi. All throughout the Old Testament. That there's a Redeemer that's coming. Save the date. Be on watch. Look. He's right around the corner. And when Jesus enters the scene, they totally miss the second invitation. And what Jesus is doing here in this parable, he's unpacking for them that this invitation that's been given, they've been invited to come, be a part of something great, to be a part of something grand, that they're missing it. They're missing it. As we look at the parable of the great banquet, do we realize that God too has extended that same invitation to us? It didn't end in Malachi. And in fact, it ends in Revelation at a huge banquet, a huge feast, a huge celebration. And the invitation's been given. Have you responded? The invitation to come and be a part of something far greater than yourself has been given. Have you responded? Do you recognize and realize that the beauty of the gospel message is that we are invited to something far greater than ourselves? Remember, we're not the best. We're not even good. In fact, we could be classified as dirty, rotten sinners. But God extends an invitation to you and he extends an invitation to me. Notice though, how they miss the invitation. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, verse 17. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Why did they miss the banquet? They missed it because they made excuses. And their excuses, by the way, center around three things. Possessions, profit, and people. Notice the first excuse that they make. They all like begin to make excuses. I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. The first excuse centers around this possession, this thing that they have bought. Janelle and I moved here three years ago from South Central Virginia. And when we moved here, we bought a house via Skype. It was a risk. In fact, my wife, the first time she saw the home was on our closing day, which also happened to be our eighth anniversary. So I always tell us the most expensive anniversary present you're ever getting from me, sweetheart. If, you know, everything else is downhill from here, right? No one in their right mind would buy a parcel of land without seeing it. No one would fork out cash and say, I'm just going to take your word that it looks like what it looks like. This man's excuse shows where his heart is. His heart is bound to his possession. This morning, maybe your heart's not bound to a piece of land that you've bought. Maybe it is. But I'm willing to bet there's men and there's women here that are trapped by the allurement of possession. That what I have is what my identity is. That I can't be obedient to what God has called me to because the weight of my possessions prevents me from doing that. Hear me, possessions aren't bad. 
All of you have possessions. That's why you're wearing clothes, right? Possessions aren't bad. Possessions become bad when they become our God. Possessions become bad when they prevent us from being obedient to what God has called us to. Notice the second excuse that is made. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excuse. His excuse centers around profit. Centers around profit. Oxen were used in the first century to not just till up the ground and plant, but they were also used to carry goods to the market. They were used in all sorts of things. They were the generator of income. Without an ox, there was no crop. Without a crop, there is no profit. And five yoke of oxen, that's 10 ox. You know, I don't buy a dog without seeing it. Like, you gonna buy 10 oxen without seeing it? Come on, man. Don't lie. You're making that excuse. And again, I, I doubt any of you are gonna go home and cuddle up next to your favorite ox. Maybe you will. I don't have any idea. If you have an ox, I'd love to meet him. <laughs> Instead, what we'll do is, is we'll cuddle up next to the allurement of profit. The allurement of money above obedience. Now again, just like possessions aren't bad, profit's not bad. Profit's bad when it becomes our God. Profit's bad when we gain it through ungodly means. I tell college students all the time, man, you should make a kajillion dollars. If that's a real number, praise Jesus. Just make sure you make it with integrity and make sure you honor the Lord in it. Make sure you realize where it comes from and make sure you know that that's not who you are. If you can do that, man, make a kajillion bucks and let me know, please. <laughs> Possessions aren't bad, profits aren't bad. But they're bad when we use them as an excuse to disobey God. The last excuse, look at what he says. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. People is his final excuse. I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now I've thrown my wife under the bus a few times. Um, probably, we've been married 11 years. She would probably attest to that. But I didn't do it on our wedding day. This joker is throwing his wife under the bus as the reason why he can't be obedient to what God has called. He's elevated people above the invitation that God's given him. And I've done the same thing. And I'm willing to bet you have too. Again, possessions and profit aren't bad. People aren't bad. But when I put my stock in my wife, or when I put my stock in my children, or when I put my stock in you, then I've inverted that relationship and I've elevated it above God. Hear me, don't do that. Don't make the excuse of possessions or profit or people as why you can't be obedient. Notice what happens. Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. Notice that he accepts their excuses, by the way. God's not gonna be mocked by you and I. His plan doesn't depend upon you. 
He accepts their excuse. And then he invites a slew of others. Go into the city. Invite those that have been overlooked. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. Look at verse 23. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. There will be no empty seats in the banquet of heaven. God's not gonna show up and go, man, I thought there'd be more people here. No, no. He has opened up the invitation. The words that Luke uses there in verse 23 with regards to the highways and the hedges are an explicit reference of the gospel being given to the Gentile world. Already in Luke 14, we see the global reality that God has, that it's not just about the nation of Israel anymore, that salvation has come to the world. And the servant of the master goes into the highways and the hedges, goes into the streets, goes into every nook and cranny and compels a word that means with extreme persuasion, lets people know there's something greater. There's something better. There's a greater feast than the one you're dining at right now. Do you recognize that God has extended this invitation to you? That the gospel message is not just a message we need at salvation, it's a message each and every follower of Jesus needs each and every day. The reality that there is a God who is holy, the creator of the universe. And because he is holy, he can't stand to be near sin. And that's a problem for you and me because we're mired in sin, separating us from God. And if the story ended there, there would be no hope. But his invitation goes further. His invitation is pictured in his son coming to live the perfect life that you and I could never live so that he could be the sacrifice you and I need. And when Jesus bore the weight of sin on the cross, he opened up the invitation. And the compelling call for you and for me is will we repent and believe? Again, followers of Jesus need this message each and every day. I need to be reminded afresh and anew each morning that I serve a holy God who's loving and caring, but he's also just and righteous. And it's only through the blood of Christ that I can come near. And my faith in Jesus is what's opened the way for me to be a part of this great banquet. So this morning, as a follower of Jesus, can I ask you, do you preach and proclaim the gospel message to yourself? Or is it something that's a mere afterthought? You need the gospel message, no matter how long you followed Christ. Not only do believers need it, but unbelievers need it. Again, the word compel is a word that means with extreme persuasion. I'm not selling you anything. That would be foolish. But what I am doing is I'm telling you that there is something far greater. 
and it's salvation through Christ alone. There's a God who's holy and you are a sinner, as am I. And apart from Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, there would be no hope for us. So the call for you, if you are yet a follower of Jesus, is will you repent and believe or will you deny and be condemned? The last kingdom principle we see is this. We are invited to replace excuses towards God with faith in God as we enter his kingdom. Follower of Jesus, stop making excuses. Don't allow possessions, profit, and people or what any other excuse you have preclude you from following Jesus. Be obedient to his word. I mean, just read it. Just open it up and see what it has to say. And be obedient to it. If you've given your life to Christ, then give your time to him as well. Give your devotion to him. May he be your Lord and Savior. Stop making excuses. God's inviting us to replace our excuses towards him with faith in him as we enter his kingdom. His kingdom is a reality for us here and now. So here's my hope. Here's my hope for us this morning. As we start a new year and we're all jazzed and excited about the new roaring 20s, which by the way, took me about a day and a half to like realize, why are people dressed up like they're from the 20s? And then it clicked, oh, because we're in the 20s. Again, not the smartest thing out there. As we start this new year, what if we sought to embrace the kingdom principles we see here? What if we actually practice what God's word declares? What if we, instead of exalting ourselves, humbled ourselves and asked God to exalt us? What if we replaced excuses towards God with faith in him? What if we sought this week to live in humility? And what if we sought this week to lay aside the excuses that we made last week and to in faith follow Jesus? Would you stand with me? Father, thank you for giving us clear direction in your word. That, Father, your word isn't hidden from us. It's not something that we have to seek and find. But, Father, it's there for us as clear as day. Help us, Father, to be humble. To rightly view you and understand who we are. Help us, Jesus, to replace our excuses 